0: Well, good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk. I'm the preaching pastor here at Encounter. And I just want to give, before we jump into the message uh, for this morning, uh, a quick update. Um, A lot of you know who've been around here for a little while. A couple of months ago, we kicked off what we're calling the Reach Campaign. The Reach Campaign is a campaign that what we're trying to do is renovate this space, our worship auditorium. And when I say renovate, what I really mean behind that is uh, design it for the first place, for the first time. Because when we moved in here a few years ago, it was really only paying attention to kind of like safety issues and bringing uh, bringing it up to code. And we did that. So like, that's good news. But now we're taking a look at making sure that the the experience is the best that we can possibly be. So what we're doing is uh, the audio systems and some sound noise paneling baffling to like reduce the the noise uh, along with the uh, house lighting and stage lighting to kind of bring it up a little bit which is also going to enhance the video so we can so we can reach more people. And a lot of people have asked, like, hey, can you give us an update? How's the thing going? I was contacted, and I set up a meeting, or whatever it was. Um, but between the gifts that came in, thank you so much, and some savings that we had set aside, we're about 60-70% to where we want to be, which leaves about 30,000 yet to go. And the team decided we're going to wrap it up, an end date of October 31. So this month, so there's only about a few weeks left, uh, to go to the website encounterchurch.org/ Reach and uh, learn more about it, watch a couple videos, and you can, you can give online that way as well. So October 31, we're going to have everything all together, and we're going to we're gonna use the resources that we have available. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to end October 31. If you'd like more information, of course, contact the church, uh, Curious at EncounterChurch.org. So this morning, though, I'm super pumped because we're wrapping up this series that we've been working on for five weeks now called Brave. It's a series that we've been doing, taking a look at the story of Daniel. And today, finally, we get to the story that most of you think of when you think of the story of Daniel. It's Daniel in the lion's den. And and before you're like, I've heard this one before, I know how it ends, like we're going to kind of pull back from the Sunday school version of Daniel in the lion's den, because chances are, if you're like me, you remember like the felt board Sunday school kind of thing, if you grew up in church, if not, you're just like, yeah, I mean, maybe a cartoon or a Veggie Tales that you saw once in a while, or a reference to a kid's uh, kids program or something, Daniel in the lion's den. You kind of think about Daniel as like this really handsome, young, 20, 30-something guy, being, being like gently lower down, usually, you know, kind of glowing from angels into this lion's den, which is super comfy and tidy and cozy. And then he's got like this stuffed you know, looking lions gathered all around him. And they're super calm. and chill. They, they look like big cats, really. And so they're cuddly. And that's how he, he spends this night. Sort of like cuddling with these big stuffed animals. And it's like, no, no, no. That's not the story that the Bible tells us of Daniel and the lion's that Far from it. And so just like like point in case, um, Daniel is not like a young 20, 30 something. As you know, if you were attending here for the last little while, one of the things that I love about the story of Daniel is how it's anchored into history. Like there's so many references to, to, to kings, like, like King Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, to empires like the Babylonian empire and the Persian empire. It, it's like is that we have this this anchoring into world history, so we kind of know like how much time has elapsed uh, in daniel 's life based on who 's sitting on the throne, even from secular history, which is a phrase that I hate because it sort of implies that like god isn 't absent in like that history, and he totally is, but that 's beside the point. We know how old Daniel is when Daniel and the lions then take place, and he 's not twenty five he 's more like eighty five I mean, he's, he's kind of an old dude, especially by ancient standards, right? When we imagine, like, like Daniel being thrown into the lions, and forget about the lions, we're worried about this guy breaking a hip or something as he gets tossed in here. And then the lions, right, there's like, oh, this is cute, stuffed, you know, cozy cats that he's hanging out with all night. It's like, have you, has anybody seen a lion? Like, out in the wild, no no barrier, no fence, no glass, Me neither, of course not. We live in Michigan. There's no lions just roaming around. Somebody said Ford Field, and I appreciate that. But they're less intimidating. I was running a little while ago. I run, you know, no big deal. I wasn't fishing. But it was a month ago or so. and, And this deer, like, bolted out from this thicket, like, right next to me. I had no idea where it came from. It just, like, jumped out. It was five feet from me. And I think I needed to change my pants. Like, it terrified me. And it's a deer running away from me. I mean, like, it's a scary story, and we need to, like, recapture some of that. But the best, the best part about the story isn't, isn't how God rescues somebody from the lion's den. The best part of the story, at least for me and how I'm going to tell today, is how in the world God cultivates a heart in somebody to make him willing and obedient to be thrown into a lion's den in the first place. So we're going to go to the story. Uh, there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. It's Daniel chapter 6. We're going to start off in verse 1. Daniel chapter 6. You can take those Bibles home if you like If you like them. I'm told they're thin and they're kind of handy. Go ahead. And, we love that. We, those that are our gift to you. Can't steal what's given to you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me, and we're a, we're a smartphone-friendly church. But Daniel chapter 6. Um, remember now, when we finished last week, The Babylonians, uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and then Belshazzar, the Babylonian, Belshazzar was killed like that very night this prophecy came true. Babylonian empire gone, replaced with the Medes and Persian. And so now now Darius is sitting on the throne as like the head guy in charge. Okay, Uh, Darius, it says, is pleased, it pleased Darius, the head guy in charge, to appoint 120 satraps, kind of a funny word, translates means like, kingdom protector, okay? 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional <clears throat> qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole Kingdom. Just a note on that. Darius is remembered in history, not for a military prowess or genius or anything. He is remembered throughout history as this administrative genius. Uh, Darius is remembered of the Persians as as entirely reorganizing the kingdom on day one, like as soon as he takes over. And what he does is referenced here is that he carves out the kingdom in 120 kind of regions or zones and appoints a kingdom protector over each of those regions called a satrap in the story. And then over those 120, there were three guys, three administrators looking after them. And Daniel is one of those guys. I highlighted the word qualities in there because I don't think it's Daniel's remarkable ability to interpret a dream that gets him to this place. I mean, we, we heard about a couple of remarkable dreams that were interpreted and came true, sometimes with that very night, like Belshazzar, but, but I don't think it's his ability to like tell you what a dream means that gets him to that place. I think that Daniel had something. And, and it wasn't even necessarily like this, like administrative genius, because Darius already had that. He didn't need that. I think what exuded out of Daniel, the qualities that are referenced here, is this this faithfulness and I'm gonna say trustworthiness that spans like a half dozen kings and two different global superpowers, the Babylonians and the Persians, with the Medes kind of smathered there in, in between. Like you just think about what it would take for somebody, I mean today, forget about back then, for somebody to like span, whose career spans these massively different administrative changes. He was under Nebuchadnezzar, he was under Belshazzar, we, um, he was on now under the Babylonians, and now the Persians, the Medes. I mean, and they always decided, we can't let Daniel go. No matter who my you know, previous uh, person was uh, that I'm following, absolutely, we can't let Daniel go. And I think that's because at every turn, they knew that Daniel was first and foremost serving, not the king who was sitting on the throne. He didn't have allegiance to a particular rule or boss or supervisor. He had allegiance to God and God alone, and that made him a remarkably honest and trustworthy person, the kind of person that you want to work with, the kind of person that you want to work for you, the kind of person that you would like your son to date or daughter to marry. He's that kind of person, and they just wanted him to stick around and in fact not just stick around but things are going pretty well things are going really well and so the king is deciding right to, to to promote him up and up and up verse four at this the administrators and the set traps he's developing enemies now tried to find grounds for charges against daniel in his conduct of government affairs but they're unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He wasn't bad or dumb. Like, and, and they found no corruption in a, in a government career that has spanned something like 70 plus years. He's been working for the government for 70 plus years and and when the when his colleagues start to like well let's let's dig up some dirt on him they can't find anything like how unbelievably rare this, this story is but that's again that's Daniel now the reason why it's going to be important to know that the reason why that the government the satraps the other administrators that the the reason why they wanted to sandbag him and kind of like undermine his work is probably because they were skimming off the top. They had some kind of con, they had some kind of grift going on, and they were, they were pocketing some of the money. And, and, and that wasn't a problem, that Daniel wasn't going along with it, because after all, it's like, well, it's just more for us. I mean, you're like, you do you, Daniel, we do us. And like, these are going to work out really, really well for us, until Darius the king starts like, you know, You know, it's kind of weird the way, like, Daniel always shows up, and he's, like, collected more revenue. He has stories to tell me. He's more honest with me. And, And so Darius starts to realize that he's kind of doing a better job. And so, like, he starts lifting Daniel up. And the other guys are like, wait a second. He's the honest person with integrity. If he gets put in charge of us, the jig is up. Like, like I, the grift has to stop. The con has to end. I'm no longer able to get rich and kind of wet my beak like I did previously to this. We don't want that to happen. And so they're like, we need to undermine him at every turn. And I need to like pause the Daniel story for just a minute and like step into the real world today, right now. And to say, isn't it true, came across this line earlier this week, isn't it true that as God raises someone up, like, we, we tend to experience others trying to tear them down? Like, particularly when it comes to, to behaviors or principles that are unpopular, culturally speaking, that, that are counterintuitive to the way that kind of everybody else is going, that when somebody decides to stand up and make this decision, And even though it's universally recognized, it's probably a good one. As God starts to raise somebody up, isn't it true that we tend to see others try to tear them down? I cannot tell you how many stories I have heard about people who made the the counterintuitive, universally good decision to, to try to get out of personal debt. This is that's it. Uh, spend less than I make. It's Dave Ramsey, rice and beans, beans and rice, sell so much stuff that you think that you know, the kids think that they're next, right? Like, it's a good thing. But everybody who has sought to do that uh, reports back, you know, it's... I didn't walk into friends like, encouraging me in this. It's like everybody was trying to, to tear me down. Everybody was telling me that's idealistic or unrealistic or never it's never going to work and you're just denying yourself and this is the normal way of life, so just embrace it even though the normal kind of is broken anyway. And, and it's like as God is trying to raise me up, it's like what I see is others tearing me down. I'm going to wade into some dangerous territory this morning, so just be gracious and say, women... Moms particularly, I think, like, you have this worse than anybody because it's like, no matter what the decision, some of you are saying, I think I hear God telling me, commanding me, really, to stay at home with my kids and to to be there and raise my beautiful babies, Uh, just me. And then like other people like start gathering around as as God is affirming that decision and raising you up for listening and being obedient to his call in your life. Like others are tearing you down. You need to develop you and you need to look after yourself and you need to have a career and like all this sort of stuff. But then if you switch it around and other moms tell me the exact same thing, right? of saying like, no, I think God is calling me to like pursue this thing and have this career. And then the other people are gathering around and say, yeah, but she doesn't like spend time at her kid's school or bring snacks and orange slices for the soccer team. And you can't win, I don't have any advice for you at all. (laughs) But I will say, I will say, as God is raising you up, you can probably expect others to start to tear you down. My favorite, (laughs) personal favorite, is if you belong to an awesome church, I don't know, you know, just Calms, we have a different one, but (laughs) thank you. And things are going well. You know, people are coming, not only like people are coming to church, but like people are coming to faith. And your church is like hearing stories of people discovering their faith for the first time or rediscovering their faith for the first time in a long time. And as God is raising this place up, you can expect others, you can almost expect to be standing in line in Chipotle and hear the person rumor in front of you talk about how the church is secretly bankrupt, and the pastor is moving to California. It isn't, and I'm not. <laughs> True story. It um, <laughs> wasn't me, though. As God, friends, I offer this. As God is raising you up, you can almost expect others to try to tear you down. And I say that, as I say that as an encouragement in order to not fear opposition when you're following God. Fear the lack of opposition when you're following God. Don't fear the opposition that will inevitably come in your pursuit of God and godliness. Fear When your obedience doesn't cost you anything and and you don't find yourself sacrificing anything because it's at that moment you have to do the tough soul searching. Daniel didn't have to. He knew exactly what it was costing him. And he finds it out in verse 5. Finally, these men, finally these guys said, will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. The only weak point in him that we can, like, we can leverage is he seems to be like fixated on obedience to this God of his. And for 70 years, he has faithfully served both the king and above him, his God, the king. And now it's time to force the decision. Now it's time to make him choose between faith and career, between faith and financial benefits, between faith and friendships. It's time to force the decision. The plan is this. They go before the king, Darius, and they say, King, oh, king, you're such a great king. King, you're the best king ever. King, like, you're, you're an administrative genius, and you know history is going to remember you that way. And so they butter him up, right? And then they, then they start saying, after he's about to say yes to like anything, they go, here's what I think we should have. Because you're such a great king, Darius, let's, let's make this temporary law that lasts 30 days, like a month, that's all, where nobody can pray to any other God except you, King Darius. Isn't that a great idea? Now, Darius knows he's not a god. They knew that. They couldn't delude themselves that far into thinking. But the selling point is that this is a, very, this is a new kingdom. It was the Babylonians, and now it's the Persians. It's a very fractured kingdom. They've got the 120 regions. The plan is to unite all the different uh, regions, all of the different places under the kingdom, under, like, one banner under Darius. So on a very, like, practical political level, it's a smooth, it's a good move. So Darius says, hey, what, what happens if... Somebody doesn't pray to me. What if they pray to somebody else? And they go, ah, don't worry about it. I mean, we'll find a place and the lion's Then We'll throw them in there. It'll be fine. Darius never considers, I think this is important, he never considers how that this is going to affect Daniel, his trusted advisor, and maybe even his friend. And so he says, okay. And the plan is released. And Daniel hears about it. And he hears that the decision is forced. And he hears that he has to make this call. I don't know what it is, right? I mean, we, we revisited this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the, the fire, faith in the fire. And he said, like, I, you know, there's so many outs that he could have, right? I mean, he could, he could just, you know, hey, don't pray to anybody else. I just think, like, he has, he has lived 85 years, presumably all of those following God. He has had a 70-plus-year career, of which he has risked his life again and again and again, standing up to kings and colleagues, everybody alike, and has always pursued God and godliness. And God has saved us like countless times. Right? Like He's so faithful all the time. And now we go on like, this is how it ends. A lion's den. And sometimes we think that Daniel is like this hero, hero of the faith and completely outside of doubt, despair, desperation completely. But just like think about, think about how Daniel was so faithful through thick and thin. You know, promotion after promotion, the the level of influence that he had, yet there was never a spiritual revival in Babylon under his leadership or in Persia because of his leadership. That it seems like all of the stands that he took and all the times that he risked his life, God never honored those things by taking the people and turning them back to God. You know, he read the stories and he hears the stories about how God raised up a leader, Moses from the wilderness, Moses, and he comes in and let my people go. And a little while later, he does. And the Pharaoh, like, lets all the people go in Egypt where they're they're slaves. And they, they get to go free. And then they eventually settle into the promised land. This time, when they're taken away from the promised land, Daniel's over here going, I have served day in and day out and not once. Have I seen a spiritual revival in this place? When are you going to lead these people out under my leadership? When are you going to save these people? And in fact, a little while later, when the people finally do get to go home, not because of Daniel, by the way, by the time they finally get to, to exit exile and go back to Jerusalem, to go back to the promised land, to go back to God's place, to go back home, almost none of them go. Because they just don't care. They stopped caring about God and godliness. And so Daniel, as an 85-year-old guy, faced with the proposition of a lion's den, I think wonders if he might not just take a break. 70 years of faithful service. God, you're going to give me a month off, right? I've earned this much. I'll come back, I promise. After 70 years of faithful service, I wonder if God not just if God's going to really care if I just phone it in, maybe I'll fake it. That's what I would do. <laughs> just kind of stand there. You praying, Dirk? Nope. Mm-mm. That looks kind of like you're praying. You're being really weird right now. You're moving your lips, but there's no, nothing. Mm-mm. No, no, not me. <laughs> he could have faked it. But this is so important. This is so important. If you're going to take one takeaway, regardless of what the actual takeaway is of the day, I just think that this is so, this is so awesome, and this is so important. Daniel knew, he knew that you don't get to experience the grace and sufficiency of God by pretending he doesn't. Exists. I'm going to say that again, because you might tweet it. I see some phones lighting up, right? You don't get to experience the grace and sufficiency of God by pretending he doesn't exist, by pushing God off to the corner, and by, and by hedging your bets to make sure that you're you're not actually reliant on God to show up. You never get to experience the full grace, the full sufficiency, and I'm going to say this morning, the full rescue of God by pretending that he doesn't exist. And so Daniel coming back to a resolution that he made 70 years ago, says, I will not pretend that my God doesn't exist. I will expect my God to show up. I will expect my God to rescue me either in this life or the next. It's in his hands. And he does. The first thing that he does, verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem, he's not being superstitious, it's just his habit. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He gets down on his knees and he prays three times. How often do we talk about prayer like it's a last resort? <laughs> How often do we say, well, you know, nothing else worked, so I guess all that there's left to do now is pray. And you just see this from God's perspective for just a minute, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that really sucks. Like, it's just you and me now, isn't it? Like, all you have going for you is the, is the creator God of the universe who, who created everything out of nothing, by the way, and redeemed, saved everything, and now is sustaining it, everything and keeping the stars in the sky and the planets in order, and I guess all that you have left is me that's really unfortunate because you're hoping for a better doctor. Like, like, you just see this sort of thing from God's perspective and say, like, you know, Psalm 29, it says that, it says that the voice of God splits cedars. It shakes the foundations of the wilderness. The, the voice of God goes ahead and twists the mighty oak trees and, and, and leaves the forests bare. And God says, and also, also I kneel down, to listen to those who approach me in humility. And you have an audience with me. And I am the last resort. And Daniel says, no. No, God, I go to you first. I go to you and I kneel down before you. And I pray. It is so important that he prays. You know what? It's so important that we're told that it was his custom to pray. This wasn't something that he did in times of tragedy or times of loss, but there's something that he did in times of plenty and in times of good. He prays. He develops this relationship with God. He prays again and again. He submits himself before God. It's almost like every day it's this predetermined plan, this plan that he has. I pray three times a day. It's just what I do. I pray because I know that if I don't have the plan, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I know that if I don't set an alarm, the chances of me going for that run in the morning is just not going to happen. I have a plan to pray. Because if I don't have a plan to develop myself spiritually to spend time with God, if I don't have a plan to grow in my faith, I'm probably not. I have a plan. And he prays. And I think he genuinely is okay with whatever the outcome because the obedience is his part, the results are God's part, and Daniel, I think, is actually okay with that. The king, by the way, was not. The king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, verse 16, and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night without eating and without entertainment, any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep, tossing and turning, worrying and wondering about Daniel in the lion's den. You know the end of the story. I think just about everybody here knows that Daniel and the lion's den, that God shows up, that God saves Daniel. It's a powerful story. I love, the, I love that God shows up. I love that God rescues him out of the lion's den. But I think so often we're focused. We stay focused on just like peering into the darkness and seeing nothing but God's results and seeing nothing but God's outcomes and seeing nothing but God's rescue. And forgetting the part of the story where he prays on his knees, kneeling before God, so long, three times a day, that get him up to that point where he's willing to go into the lion's den in the first place. That's what it means to be brave. That's biblical bravery. That's godly courage. This is a courage not when you're in the fire only, not when you're faced with the lion's den only, but courage when times are good, courage when things are going well, courage when the family's together, courage when you like your job to sit down, to kneel down and pray before God and talk, cultivate, develop that relationship with Him. Now, the question I think this morning is not does Daniel get out of the lion's den? I don't think you care or wonder about that. I think the question isn't does Daniel, Daniel receive rescue. I think the question is, are you going to be rescued? Because you you have something to be rescued from. Do you have some part of your life that's not like that's not firing on all cylinders? Do you, do you have a friendship that is? soured over time or grown distant over time. You have a career setback or a joblessness. You have some area that you need to be rescued from, maybe a relationship that you never thought that you would be in. You need rescue out of the prison of insecurity, of bitterness, of unforgiveness. You need to be rescued out of these things, maybe even rescued from yourself. You need to be rescued out of the pit that is despair or maybe depression. We all need to receive this rescue even out of the lion's den of doubt or apathy in our faith life. And it's needs going to take an act of God to step in and to pull us, pull us out of these things. And it happens long before you find yourself in them. But by three times a day having a plan to pray to God. Now, we get the impression that Daniel was rescued out of these things because he was so good. Seventy years of faithful service. Didn't he deserve to be rescued? Here's the thing, though, folks. He didn't. He didn't deserve to be rescued. You're wondering, like, the things that I've done, the person that I am, the bet I'm in, do I deserve to be rescued? And you don't either. And I don't either. And the story of Daniel isn't even about the story of Daniel. The story of Daniel is God telling the story about one time in world history when a man was put into the ground and the king sealed him up. And do you know that story is kind of a repeating tale that God tells, a repeating story that God actually literally casts and comes to light in world history? The names change and the people changes, but the story stays the same, that God's rescue still comes, that God still has people put into the ground by kings and Caesars, seals up the tombs, and they break forth in victory, that God's rescue is still present, is still real. God didn't save Daniel because Daniel was good enough. God doesn't save you or I because you or I are good enough. God saves Daniel, God saves you and I, not because we're good enough, but because he's good enough. And he sees the righteousness and the and the faithfulness and the obedience, not of us. But he sees the righteousness and the goodness of the one who is finally put into that tomb, not for a day, but for three, and not with not with lions in the den but with death itself all around him and he emerges in victory out of that that's why that's why when we when we pray and this is going to be so important to pray when we pray you know you you end with that little line it's kind of a throwaway line that we don't think about too much but it so isn't everything hinges on that little line that you end most of your prayers with and you say simply in Jesus name amen Because we are saying in that moment is that it's not on your credibility that you approach the God that twists the oak trees and leaves the forest bare. It's not on your goodness that you get to go into that presence of that God, but it's on on the name of Jesus that you get to do that. It's on his credibility and his righteousness, not our own, that God hears us and listens to us and rescues us. And there's probably people here today have wandered away and lost what that means. Maybe you think you never had it in the first place. you are just going through the motions. And you're saying, I want to experience that rescue. I want to experience the power of praying in the name of Jesus. <laughs> On his righteousness, his goodness, his power, and not just, not just my own. A while ago, I heard a story uh, from a friend of mine. He he shared about how his church did this thing and it just massively rocked his world in a most beautiful way imaginable. He had taken everything really that he had at his disposal and, and put it all in this project that he was working on and the project didn't pan out. And sometimes this happened but it was a big wager, it was a big bet and everything went in onto it and it didn't come to pass like he hoped and prayed that it would and so everything sort of like comes down this is a kind of a career setback, to put it mildly, this was current financial crisis. And so he's tossing and turning at night, just wondering, not even knowing what to pray, not even knowing where to turn. And then that weekend at, at church, the pastor stands up and said, we're going to do something a little differently today. We're going to, we're going to actually pray because God hears the righteousness of Christ when we pray in his name. So leaders are going to come forward and stand up. And if you need to be rescued from something, if you need to be prayed for something, if you need somebody to lead you into a relationship with him through faith, and you don't know how to do that, you come forward and you simply pray. And he hears this, this like tug and this pull of God, like you need, you need to be prayed for. This thing is for you. And he resists. I don't want to go forward. I don't want to go up there. I'm just going to sit here. And even though it's like, what do you have to lose? What do you have to gain? He sits and stays down. And eventually, he's out in the lobby, right, regretting not going forward and still thinking about that. And he sees the guy. He sees the guy that he would have prayed with had he had the courage to go forward, the bravery to go forward. And he says, hey, man, this is the story, a little bit of it. Can you just pray for me? I know you're willing because you were just up here before. Just take a minute. And the guy like, like, like actually like, prays, but not like a, just, you know, Jesus, whatever he's struggling with, help him out. Amen. I got to get lunch. No, no, no. He like prays and like gets into it. He's describing this and he's like weeping as he's, he's praying for a complete stranger, by the way. And then something incredible happened that he never saw coming. He goes, three hours later, I was at home still wondering about how God is gonna show up in my life. And there he is. He's standing on my front porch with his kid, and he's got a check in his hand, and he goes, This is everything I have to give for right now. And it wasn't just groceries, and it wasn't just teaching his kid who was there the power of God showing up, but it was what it turned into: this relationship that developed, this friendship this mentorship that developed, the, ministry, the prison ministry that developed, the disabled person's ministry that developed out of it. And the thing just spirals and spirals and gets bigger and bigger and bigger as together in their group, and their small group, in their church, impact hundreds of lives on a regular basis. And it starts with somebody simply coming forward and praying because it's kneeling before God that we find strength to stand in faith. So let's do that this morning. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward. And they're going, to, they're going to stand out in front here in the upper lobby. If you're watching back there, there's somebody in the lobby as well. And in back, if that's a closer spot for you, uh, these people have been praying for you this week. Other people that I've recruited in as well have been praying for you this week so, to share whatever the burden is, wherever the rescue is, that you need to see God show up. If you want to come forward and if you want to share with these people what you need to be rescued from or what next step of faith that you're hoping to see God take in your life, you can share that. Go ahead and tell them whatever, whatever's on your heart, whatever's in your life, or not just come forward, maybe just like this, and just ask to be prayed over. We would love to do that for you as we finish this series and figure out what it means to be brave. In just a minute, the worship team is going to come forward. We're going to sing this song we learned a couple of weeks ago, Oh, Come to the Altar. And I just need to remind you one more time, the altar that we come to is not an artifice of the Old Testament. It's not a physical standing tomb somewhere. The altar is our risen Lord Jesus Christ in his empty grave. And when we pray, prayer team, we pray in the name of Jesus. Everybody, you to stand up everybody now in the upper lobby watching online let's pray together our gracious god god we pray all these things in your name we pray because it's your goodness and it's your righteousness and not our own god we pray with humility with expectation We pray taking all the different areas of our lives that we need to turn over to you. And God, we ask that you give us the courage to do that. Courage to say things that need to be said. Courage to ask for prayer when we need to be asked for. God, I pray for somebody in the room who doesn't know where they stand with you right now and they've been curious and they've been wondering about an invitation, wondering about what that next step looks like. God, I pray for that heart, for that soul, that this could be a moment that they look back on for the rest of your life and to say, God, you showed up then. And God, may may we be a people of prayer long after this time ends. As daily, continually as Daniel did, we come to your altar, Jesus Christ,